The scripture reading is taken from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kimberly. Since Easter we've been looking at uh, Paul's letter to the Galatian churches, a group of churches in what is now Turkey, churches that he had gone to as a church planter, shared the gospel, created new Christian churches, and then he would move on and plant other churches. And it was his habit to stay in touch with letters. And in fact, much of the New Testament are Paul's letters to the churches. We've seen that he was very upset with the Galatian churches. He gave them the gospel. He gave them the freedom of the gospel. You are saved by faith in Christ alone. But they had been adding to the gospel. People were coming in behind Paul, and they were saying different things to the churches. The main thing they were saying is, you as a Gentile can't be a real Christian until you first become Jewish. You need to be circumcised. You need to follow all the laws, the rituals, all the prohibitions in the Old Testament. Last Sunday, we saw how Paul... To make sure he got his facts right, went down to Jerusalem, checked in with the apostles, checked in with the leaders of the early church in Jerusalem, to make sure his gospel was their gospel, that it was the same gospel. And they agreed with him, and they gave him the right hand of fellowship, and off he goes. Now, Paul is explaining what happened next. So let's look at it. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Cephas is the Aramaic um, name for what in Greek is Peter, rock. So this is Peter, the rock on which Christ built his church. Aramaic, Cephas in Greek, uh, Petrus in English, Peter. And so here you have really the premier leader of the uh, apostles. The apostles were essentially equal, but Peter was very much first amongst equals. The rock on which Christ said he would build his church. He has left Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the capital of Israel and of Judaism, where the early church began. And he's gone north into Syria, to Antioch. Antioch is where Christians are first-world Christians. 
and really was the center and the beginning of the ministry to the Gentiles, that is, non-Jews, essentially the rest of the world, certainly the rest of the Roman world. And so Peter has come up from Jerusalem to see what is happening in Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. And yet, despite the fact that the last time we saw them together, Peter gives Paul the right hand of fellowship, now we see them at odds. It was conflict. Two of the leading apostles fighting each other. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, the history book of the church, the first part of it is essentially about Peter, and the second half of it is essentially about Paul. And this conflict was the biggest and most um, influential, influential is probably the wrong word, most significant battle of the early church. What is the relationship between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians? Do you have to become Jewish to be a real Christian? What is the relationship between Christianity and the Old Testament and the law? Important questions that still resonate today. And this is where it comes to a head. In passing, I should say, the book of Galatians, this letter, is probably the earliest writing in the New Testament. This is when all the apostles were still alive. And so the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were not written down until the apostles had stopped their public ministry. So Paul's letter, and this is his first, is probably the very first writing of the New Testament, of the Christian era. And so what it talks about is essentially the origins of the Christian church and the struggle for the gospel, even in the very earliest church. So what was the conflict? Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, James is back down in Jerusalem. He was one of the early leaders. He, Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The circumcision group is the group of Jewish Christians who are going around saying to Gentile Christians, you need to become Jewish before you're a real Christian. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas was one of uh, Paul's fellow uh, church planters and traveled around with him planting churches. Barnabas was Jewish. Uh, Titus, the other great early leader, was Greek. So what's going on here? I mean, this is a battle. This is a conflict for the soul of Christianity. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. So Peter had come up to see Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. He'd gone north, and he'd gotten into the habit of eating with Gentile believers, fellow Christians. Now, in the early church, there wasn't such a distinction as we have between the Lord's Supper we celebrate uh, on Sunday and regular meals. And so it's not clear if Paul is specifying here just regular eating or he's talking about the Lord's table, celebrating the Lord's Supper together. 
is probably a combination of both. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. So what is Peter afraid of? What is the issue here? Well, in Judaism, eating is strongly associated with faith and culture. Keeping kosher, ritual cleanliness, only eating what is allowed uh, in the book of Leviticus, in the dietary laws, these were all very powerful patterns and habits of daily life. They were what distinguished Jewish culture, what made it different from the surrounding cultures. Bringing a Gentile, that is, a non-Jew, somebody who did not follow these dietary laws or these cleanliness rituals, bringing a Gentile into your home defiled your home, made it unclean. Touching a Gentile defiled you. Eating Gentile food was an abomination. Sitting down regularly with Gentiles to eat meant you had given up on God and the law. You're a rebel. In fact, this was one of the charges laid against Jesus when he would sit down and eat with all kinds of people and it has upset the religious leaders of Israel. So why was this hypocritical? The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. This was They were Jews. This was Jewish law. What was the hypocrisy here? Now, initially, I was just going to skip over this bit. I'm just going to take you to justification by faith. It's what Protestantism is all about. It's what most of seminary is all about. But there is an issue here that bedevils modern Christians. And so I feel like I've got to tell you the real story of what happened here, which will require going to the book of Acts and reading an entire chapter. I hope that is not going to freak you out. If you have a Bible... We're going to look at Acts chapter 10. The hypocrisy was that God had already spoken directly to Peter and the church on this issue. Acts chapter 10 is just a very important chapter for all Christians and for the relationship of the Christian church and Christians to the Old Testament. So I'm going to read it to you. At Caesarea, Caesarea is on the coast, just a little bit north of Jerusalem, but it's still in Israel. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. So he's a centurion, he's from Rome, he's one of the occupying soldiers, that makes him bad. He's also a Gentile, that makes him bad. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to all those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor 
have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. So a lot of names here. Joppa is a little north of uh, Caesarea on the coast, still in um, Israel. Simon was Peter's original name. When Simon came to Jesus, Jesus changed his name to Cephas, the rock, which then becomes Peter in Greek and comes to us in the English name Peter. When the angel who had spoken to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier, who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. So why is Peter so shocked? What's going on here? He would have recognized the animals. If you go back to the Old Testament, the third book of the Old Testament, you have Genesis, you have Exodus. The third book is called Leviticus. And it describes what happened when Israel was gathered around Mount Sinai receiving the law from God through Moses. And in chapter 11, there are the dietary laws, which describe basically the animals that the Israel is allowed to eat and those that are not allowed to eat. And it's primarily... The typical domestic animals are, you're allowed to eat. All four-footed domestic animals, apart from the camel, the pig, the rabbit. You're not allowed to eat reptiles, snakes, things that crawl on the ground. What, what Peter sees on this sheet is them all mingled together, clean and unclean. And God is saying, you can eat these things. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the man sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped by the gate. Surely not, Lord. Peter can't believe what he's hearing from God. Peter was a devout Jew. What you can eat and not eat, the dietary laws, would have been the pattern of his life from birth. This would be his day-to-day practice. And suddenly God is saying, that is all swept away. It'd be like, uh, not completely like, but similar to, 
an American being told that you need to get rid of the Constitution, you need to get rid of Congress, you need to get rid of the flag, you need to get rid of the Fourth of July and motherhood and apple pie, get rid of everything, become mere Englishmen again. It would be shocking. It would be the national identity being swept away. And so Peter is, this is, this is very hard to receive. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the man sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I am the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who was respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men to the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the house of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. And Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews 
and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard him speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So that's the whole of chapter 10. A very important chapter in the New Testament. What does it tell you? It tells you there is no distinction now between Jew and Gentile. That the gospel is for both Jew and Gentile. After this encounter, uh, Peter returns to Jerusalem, and he tells this story to all the leaders of the early church. And they all receive it and welcome it and worship God because of it. So the church, through Peter's leadership here, makes a decision. There is no distinction. You do not have to become Jewish to be a Christian. Although all the early believers were Jewish, though all the apostles were Jewish, though Jesus was Jewish, though he was the Jewish Messiah promised to Israel, he is also the fulfillment of God's promise to the world. And therefore, the gospel is not just a Jewish gospel, Jewish good news. It is good news for everyone. All you need to do is put faith in Him. Nothing else. You don't have to get circumcised. You don't have to go through special rituals. You don't have to do any of the things that were happening before Jesus showed up. Faith in Jesus alone. We've talked about this week after week. In fact, this is the theme of Paul's letter to the Galatians, as we'll see. So now you know why Paul is upset. Paul knows all this has happened. He went down to Jerusalem. He spoke to the early leaders. And so, verse 14, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? This is the hypocrisy that that Peter is being called on. God has spoken to him. You know, he spent three years with Jesus. God speaks to him, and yet Peter can still get it wrong. 
Peter still needs to be rebuked and corrected. By the way, um, some people think you have to be somehow special to be a Christian, morally wonderful, that somehow there are these spiritual superheroes, saints. Remember this story next time you are thinking that way or you are worried about your own behavior. If there was ever a superstar, it was Peter. Jesus chose him. Jesus said to Peter directly, your faith is what I'm going to build my church on. And the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. He is the foundation of the Christian church, his faith in Jesus. And yet he is just an ordinary man. He was a fisherman. He was nothing special. He wasn't necessarily very smart. He certainly was not educated. He was illiterate. He could get it wrong. He could fall back into the practices and habits of his Jewish culture. He could feel fear, peer pressure. He could betray the gospel right at the get-go. It's a reminder that the significance of a Christian person, the significance of a Christian church, is not the quality and character and will of those people. It is only the presence of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. That is our strength. That is our significance and value. I and you will betray Jesus again and again and again. Peter did it three times right before the crucifixion. That does not take away anything from the power of the gospel, from Jesus' truth, or your faith and relationship to him. Jesus is not an example to us so that we become heroes. He is a hero for us, a savior, because we are such wretched, wretched sinners. You know, at seminary, when we went through um, the essences of the gospel, we got in the habit of greeting each other by saying, you wretched sinner. And people thought it was really funny, but it's absolutely true. Where individuals, where pastors, where churches, where denominations, where whole movements go wrong is when they start thinking there's something special about themselves. There's not. The specialness is not in our humanity. It is in the presence of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. That's our significance. That's the specialness. That's the power. And that's why we should never let go of it. Whenever you're feeling self-righteous, superior, whenever you're finding yourself angry with other people or disdainful of other people, remember this, this story right here about Peter. Remember that every one of us is just a human being, and we can all get lost. That's why we need to be tender with each other and forgiving. That's why we need to be generous. We are all in need of saving. We are all wretched sinners. Don't think too highly of yourself. So he started off with a question. And it was a question right back here. Um, 
What has the Old Testament got to do with, Christ- with Christians then? How should we think about all the laws, all the stories about Israel, all the practices? Well, um, one of our elders, Kevin Gosa, he's back there. We were talking about this. I was, I was trying to figure out how to combine all this vast quantity of stuff into one sermon. And uh, he pointed out that if you go online to the e-Bible, every week, one of the top questions people have is this question. What is the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament? What has the Old Testament got to do with Christians today? Do Christians have to obey the laws? Why should we read about those arcane laws those strange practices, those bloody sacrifices. And you'll often hear, I've often heard this being a criticism to Christians. If you really took the Bible seriously, then you'd be stoning people for adultery, and you would be wearing funny clothes, not mixing fibers, and you'd be eating in a different way. You'd still be sacrificing. Clearly, you don't take the Bible seriously. You just pick and choose the parts you like. What is our relationship to the law? Famously, Paul answers right here, verse 15 and on. We, who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. This is the first use of this phrase, justified by faith. This was the foundation of the Protestant Reformation. This is the foundation of every Protestant church. Anglicans and Methodists and Baptists and Presbyterians Everyone, Lutherans, understanding what justified by faith means is essentially the Christian lifestyle. And it's what all of Galatians is going to be about. So we're going to talk about it some more as we go along. But a quick answer. What has changed between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Jesus. All the Old Testament, all of it, points to him. All the stories and the prophecies and the promises point to who Jesus is and what he will be like. And all of the laws were put there so that that Israel would become a society in which Jesus Christ would be intelligible. The laws that make a distinction between good and bad righteous and unrighteous, help us understand our relationship with a righteous God. All the sacrifices, all the heroes of the faith, they point to him. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. They all point to him. And that's the reason that once you put your faith in him, you don't need the law. 
After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his apostles and he said this, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Scriptures back then were the Old Testament, all about Jesus. Or Paul later in Galatians. This is, uh, we're going to look at this, chapter 3. Before the coming of faith in Jesus, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So what does all that mean? All the Old Testament points forward and looks forward to Jesus. And now the Christian church only has to look back and put its faith in him. Nothing else. You can learn things about the character of God from the law. You can learn things about how people relate to God in the Old Testament. But we are no longer, and our relationship with God is no longer conditioned by whether or not we fulfill the law. When asked, Jesus said that all the law of all the prophets, everything in the Old Testament can be summarized in two statements. Love God and love your neighbor. And when we put our faith in him alone, we are empowered to do both. Think what's, what's going to happen right now. We're going to go to the table, and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is going to be what allows us to love God without fear. Because everything in the law was fulfilled in Jesus, and the penalties paid. And when we go to the table together, we can love each other without fear. Because we're a new community, defined not by what we have done in the past, but why, by what we're becoming in Christ. We are a fellowship, a communion, a church. Jesus does it all so that we don't have to. And when we come to the table, that's all we have to acknowledge. We're going to confess before we come to the table this morning. And in that confession, we acknowledge not only all the things that we have done wrong, but all the things that we think we've done right and make us deserve God's love. We have to get rid of both. So we come dependent on Jesus alone, faith in him alone, what he has done alone. And then we're communing with God and each other. We're going to do that in a moment. But first, let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your grace, for your forgiveness, for the fact that you have chosen to love wretched sinners like us, that you have saved us, that you have paid the price of bringing us into your family, that you want us to be in your life forever.
What a miracle. Lord, we thank you for the Christian gospel. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.